0: Today is Yom Kippur, or what we would call the Day of Atonement. And this day is considered to be the holiest day of the year, the most sacred day on the Jewish calendar. For believers in Yeshua of Nazareth, this festival, this is riddled with deep spiritual meaning. It's an extremely important uh, day for us. It carries a profound impact on our lives. One that has been left to us as a memorial. This day is a memorial for us. And the Lord actually commanded His people to observe this day. We find this uh, command in Leviticus 23, verse 27. Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day... Of atonement. In the Hebrew, it's Yom HaKippurim. It shall be a holy convocation. Mikra Kodesh in the Hebrew. You know what a Mikra Kodesh, what a holy convocation is? It is God calling His people, calling out to them, saying, Come before me, acknowledge me. This day is sacred, this day is holy. That's what this Mikra Kodesh is. So it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and you shall do no work on that same day. For it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you uh, before the Lord your God. Moving on to verse 29. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from among his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. When you look at this memorial which God has given us to observe, we find that there are two primary commandments which are incumbent upon us today to keep, to observe on this holy day. And that is, number one, there is no working in Hebrew, lo melacha. There's no working. It is holy. It doesn't matter if Yom Kippur falls on the seventh day Sabbath, which it does today. It could fall on any day of the week. It doesn't matter. Yom Kippur is holy. It is sanctified, and so therefore we observe it in Sabbath rest. The second thing that we are commanded, uh, that we were commanded here in this uh, portion in Leviticus 23, was this. We are to afflict our souls. In other words, we are to fast. We abstain from food and water. Food and water does not touch our lips. And every year on this day, there's always a passage that I meditate on. Every year on this day, I meditate on one particular passage. And that passage is found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of of God. That is exactly what we do today on Yom Kippur. We, our sustenance is the word. Our sustenance is the word that was made flesh. Yeshua, right? He is the manna from heaven. He's the bread from heaven. John chapter 6, he says, he who eats of my flesh, he will receive eternal life. This is what we eat today and only that. We starve the flesh to feed the spirit. You know what, it's interesting that even when you get into the Gospels, you get into Matthew, you find Yeshua is taken out, He's driven out into the wilderness. The Spirit brings Him out there. He actually quotes this verse, Man shall not live by bread alone, to the evil one. And what was He doing? He was doing what we are doing today. Yeshua was fasting. He said, this is what we live on. This is how man is going to survive. It is on the Word. Amen? Now... Every year, I always give a message that's Yom Kippur-ish, if you will, right? I pull out something about Yom Kippur, whether it's Leviticus 16. And you look at Leviticus 16, it it's literally talks about the ceremony that took place on Yom Kippur, where the star of the show is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And there's times that I also look at themes of atonement. So every year, I try to pull something out. Well, this year... I want to do something a little bit different than what I've done in previous years. The message that I'm going to give today is going to be a little bit more controversial. And as you know, I always steer away from controversy. This is just something that in the last year, man, it just I keep getting sucked into this stuff. But this year, we're going to do a message that has to do with this. The sacrifice for sin. I know what you're thinking, what is so controversial about the sacrifice for sin? Actually, the topic becomes very controversial when you begin to ask questions. Questions like this one. Will the sacrifices resume again upon the completion of the third temple? This question is going to be the springboard for today's message. And let me tell you something. When you begin to ask questions like this, Controversy is inevitable. It's going to happen. Because you are now charting those waters of eschatology. You're charting those waters of what will be. Those waters of the unknown. Now, I pose this question because this is something that I've actually had people come up to me. They've asked me about it. This is something that believers in general are questioning more and more every day. Based upon the things that they read, based upon the things that they're actually hearing, based upon the things that their own eyes are seeing, things that they're being taught. When you take into account organizations like the, the, the Temple Institute, which if you're not familiar with the Temple Institute, this is an organization that is dedicated to the rebuilding of the third temple. They have been creating the artifacts for years now. They've been taking in millions of dollars. They're dedicated to the reinstitution of the Kohanim. To reinstitute the temple services as they once were. And when you see things like this happening, it's only natural for questions to arise. Questions like this one. Will the sacrifices resume again upon the completion of the third temple? Let me tell you something. Where there is questions... What will you find? Answers. Right? The old Jewish adage is, ask three rabbis a question and you will get five answers. Right? If you have a question about anything, it is not hard to find an answer for it. Whether for good or for bad. We can justify pretty much anything. That dreaded internet that we go to. Right? And this is where my concern comes into play. What answers are the people receiving in regard to this particular question? Unfortunately, today, this is a teaching that is moving about. There is a teaching that, that's moving about that is it's causing confusion. One simply that fails to recognize or understand what it is that Yeshua has really done. When He gave up His life, when He paid the price for our sins, when He spoke those awesome and powerful three words... It is finished. My goal today is going to be simple. I want to bring clarity to the table in regard to Yeshua's sacrifice for our sins and the reality of what transpired through his sacrifice and how his sacrifice has affected the future of mankind forever, including that of the third temple. So with that said, I want to begin to investigate this question. And again, I'm going to do something unusual I'm just going to cut to the chase, I'm going to go to the very end, and I'm going to give you the answer to this question. Real simple. The answer is yes and no. Now, I promise clarity. There it is, right? Clear as mud? Well, let me explain. The first thing I need to do today with you is I need to establish a foundation. I need you to understand that there are a variety of different types of sacrifices that were offered in the temple. And having this knowledge, as we go through this, is going to be quite useful for us as we get further into this study. Now, the first two words I want to throw at you are general terms. Terms that we find over and over in the Torah. And the first term is this. It is zavach. Zavach is the general term for sacrifice. Okay? It's zavach. It can be used as a noun. It can be used in the verb form. We see it all over the pages. Typically, when you see the word in the English, sacrifice, this is the word you are viewing. There's another general term that is like it, and that is korban. In the plural, korbanot. And this is the general term that you'll see for offerings that's used. You find it right away in Leviticus chapter 1, Vayikra chapter 1. You find korban youths or korbanot. Now, it is worth mentioning in regard to korban, that the actual root of it is kharav. And what does kharav, when you go to the root of these Hebrew words, it's very impactful, it's very powerful, because it gives you insight into what it is. Kharav is the root of korban. And what does kharav mean? It means to draw near. To draw near. We are being told something about the korbanot about the sacrifices. Something is happening in a relationship form between mankind and God. The drawing near. Man is drawing near to his God. Very, very awesome. So, these are your two general terms. Zavach, Korban. Now, there are other specific terms that would fall under this category of Korbanot let's go through some of these. The first being the Oa. This is the first actual sacrifice that is mentioned in Vayikra. It is a burnt offering. It's a little bit unusual in the sense that this is an offering that you would offer of your own free will. And this is something that was entirely burned upon the altar of God. Not just the fatty lobe and the fatty liver and the fat by the, by, by the organs and that you got the kidneys. That's typically what you would throw. That's the memorial portion that would be thrown on the altar. That is not the case with the burnt offering, with the Ola. The entire animal was burnt upon the altar with the exception of the hide. The hide would be kept back and the priest, that would be the Kohanim's. The priest would get the hide. Another sacrifice that existed was known as the mincha, the mincha, and this is the grain offering. Again, early on in Leviticus, we come across this. The majority of chapter two is dedicated to the mincha. It's a grain offering. You think about what uh, if you were to bring your tithe in of your grain. This is one of the things that you would do. You would take your your first of your first fruits, which is of your grain. You would bring it to the Kohen. And the priest would take his hand, and he would grab a handful. He would bring it over to the altar and place a memorial portion of that on the altar. It would be burned as a sacrifice. The mincha is a sacrifice, and then the rest, the priest himself, he would he would keep the rest. I do want to mention, for those of you Torah scholars out there, the mincha is not a sin offering. It is an offering, it is a sacrifice, it is not a sin offering. There is only one example, and it's an anomaly, it's very unusual, where a mincha, where grain would be utilized as a sin offering. And that would be if you are the poorest of the poor. See, if you couldn't afford a lamb, you were required to purchase pigeons, two birds, and then that, that would have to suffice for the offering for sin. But if you couldn't afford that, you couldn't afford the lamb, couldn't afford the birds, then you go down to the very bottom, then you brought the grain. You would bring grain as an offering, and that would be burned upon the altar as a sin offering. But understand this, it's not a regular offering. It's not a regular grain offering. Because the oil and the frankincense that were put on grain offerings, when they were burnt on the altar, that oil, that frankincense is stripped. And then it becomes. So my point, what I'm making here is, the mean ha is not something that was utilized for sin, and yet it is a sacrifice that was performed in the temple. In fact, quite often, twice a day. All right, now we come to the next... uh, Oh, what happened to my letters? Those are not Hebrew letters, by the way. (laughs) I... Just want to make that clear. These are not Hebrew letters. We are not creating our own Hebrew. Something happened here. Forgive me. But that actually says the Shalamin Zavach. The Shalamin Zavach actually is the peace offering. And it's, there's, a, there's a clever pun that kind of helps you understand what this offering is about. Because everyone gets a piece of it. Everyone gets a piece of the peace offering. In other words, this was a sacrifice that was brought... A portion would be given to the Lord, a portion was given to the Kohen, and a portion would be retained by the Offeror. They would all partake of the Shalamin, Zavach, of the peace offering. This was something that the children of Israel would bring because they are thankful to God. For all the mercies, the grace that He has shown, that He showed Israel, they would bring these in thanksgiving. All the things that He had done for them individually, they would bring a, a Shalomin Zavach. I want to make the note, though, again, like I did the Mincha, this is not a sin sacrifice. This is a peace offering. If you wanted to make a sin sacrifice, that is the chatat The chatat This is a sin offering. Again, when you begin to go to the roots of the Hebrew words, you learn so much about what it is. Well, we know this is a sin offering, the chatat is, but if you go to the root, it's chatah. Do you know what "khata" means? It means miss. You missed the mark. That's literally what it means. Isn't that what sin is? Sin is missing the mark. We know our Lord Yeshua didn't miss the mark. He hit it, right? And you kind of think about passages. When you understand things like this, when you look at these things from the Hebrew mindset, you have so much depth to you when you analyze the New Testament. And you look at statements like what Paul made in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. And he says, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. Well, you really start, you can start peeling it like an onion. You First, you can go to the Greek and you find out, well, Christ is the telos. He is the goal. Yes, telos can mean end. But it doesn't mean that it disappears. It means that it accomplished. He hit the mark. And when you understand what sin is and the fact that it was missing the mark, Paul is bringing this out, that look at Yeshua. He is the end result. He is the mark of Torah. You want to see what Torah looks like when it's lived out in the flesh? Yeshua of Nazareth. So here we have the chatat, the sin offering. Now there's another offering like it, and that is the asham. The asham, typically when you read in Scripture, you'll come across someone giving a guilt offering, or someone's giving a trespass offering. The word in Hebrew is asham. Every time, you'll see it's, it's asham. In fact, this is the very term that's used in the prophecy that we know so very well found in Yeshayahu, or Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 talks about Yeshua and the fact that he would become an asham. He would become a guilt offering. So we have the chatat, we have the asham. These were things that were utilized to make atonement for the sins of Israel. That would keep us in good standing before God. That would cleanse the children. There is one more that had to do with sin. And that is, oh here we go again. I am so sorry. Not Hebrew. But this is supposed to say the para adama, which is to say the red heifer, which you probably heard earlier today. This is all about the red heifer. And the red heifer, the whole point of that is, it was kind of unique as well, because like the burnt offering, the entire animal itself was burned upon the altar. The only difference between the Olah and the para adama was you didn't strip the hide. You even burned the hide when it came to the red heifer. And then they would collect the ashes. And those ashes were utilized for purifying from sin. That was the point, is to purify from sin. If you touched a corpse, you touched a dead body, you needed to be purified. And this was the, the uh, recourse for that, was the para adumah. Now, <clears throat> what I want you to note here is that not all the sacrifices are the same, Right? Different sacrifices carried different functions. It's that simple. So with that in mind, I want to go back to our question. Will the sacrifices resume again upon the completion of the third temple? Again, my answer is yes and no. I say yes because there's scriptural evidence that suggests that yes, sacrifices are going to happen in the messianic era, in the age to come. When this corruption is put on incorruption, Scripture alludes to the fact there will be sacrifices. But I say no to the fact that the sin sacrifices be reinstated. They will never be reinstated. But unfortunately, there is some division on this matter. Not everyone agrees with this assessment. There are some who take the position that the Third Temple when it's revealed, we are absolutely going to return back to all of the temple sacrifices, including the sin offerings. And I can tell you, I've personally had these discussions with these individuals that subscribe to this ideology, to this belief. And this is where, again, my concern begins to grow. And let me tell you why. If you take the position that the sin sacrifices are going to be reinstated, Unfortunately, it reveals a total lack of understanding regarding what Yeshua really accomplished on the cross. A total lack of appreciation, a lack of understanding. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads thinking, what what are you talking about, Daniel? I've never heard anybody say that they believe that the sin sacrifices are going to come back. Well, whether or not you've heard about this teaching, it exists. And whether or not you've heard about this teaching is not as important as you possessing the information that we are going to cover today. The information we are going to look at, I need you to retain so that you can actually address this topic intelligently from a biblical perspective. You can bring clarity to the table, shed light on these gross misconceptions. And best of all, you're going to exalt the name of Yeshua to the place he deserves to be the highest of heights. Amen? Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why would anyone believe that the sin sacrifices are coming back? What proof does someone have? Well, first of all, we have the Torah, right? We have the Torah. Torah's legitimate. I think everyone in this room would, would call it legitimate. But I can tell you this there are two other passages that are found in Scripture, that over and over, and I've, ha- I've not had this discussion once or twice. I've been confronted with this issue that the sin sacrifices are coming back on many occasions. And the, the two passages that keep being regurgitated, they keep coming, are these, one from Acts and one from Zechariah. And what I want to do is I want to look at the evidence of this I want to look at the other side. I want to show you what the other side is saying so that you can understand the development of this theology, the development of this ideology. And when the opportunity presents itself, you'll be equipped. So with that said, I want to take you to the first passage, Acts 21, verse 18. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, verse 20. And when they heard it, they began to glorify God. Now, I want to understand what's happening in the first century. This is the most unusual thing ever. Gentiles are being grafted in into a Jewish nation. Gentiles are coming into the Jewish nation. This is huge. This is catastrophic. This is something that had not happened ever. Not in this magnitude. The Spirit of God is being poured out. And so here we have this. This is what Paul does. He goes and meets with James, and he comes back, and he's declaring to them what is happening among the Gentiles. And they respond this way. When they heard it, they began glorifying God. They rejoiced that Gentiles were coming into faith, the faith of Yeshua. And then listen, how do they respond? It's beautiful. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews, of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the Torah. So in response to Paul telling them all these Gentiles are being grafted in, they reciprocate the joy by saying, look around you. Even our own brother, they're coming in by the thousands, our own brethren. It's just a powerful moment. It's like you you read this text and you can feel the power of God. You can feel the power of the Spirit moving. It's awesome. And he makes note, they are zealous for Torah. But now look at what happens. Verse 21, And they have been told about you. Okay, what is, what's, put this in order now. He's, Paul was just told, all, there's a lot of Jewish brethren coming in. They're coming into the faith. They're zealous for Yeshua. They're zealous for Torah. But they've been told about you, <clears throat> that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Now, where do you suppose this came from? Read Acts 15. Do you remember? There was Pharisees that were coming into the faith. They confessed Yeshua as Lord. And they were coming in, and these Pharisees rose up and they said, the Gentiles cannot be saved unless they're circumcised. So where do you suppose... These rumors, which were not true, by the way, Paul never taught that the Jews should stop circumcising their children. That's blasphemy. He would never teach such a thing. And yet, there's rumors going around that this is what he was doing. Okay? So this is the context of this passage. Going on to verse 22. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Therefore do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Now the first thing is, is they realize, Paul, we need to do something. There are rumors going around about you that you're preaching heresy. We need to do something to prove. We need to put, remove this stumbling block from our own brethren so that they don't stumble in regard to who you are and the ministry you've been called to. And so this is, this is the solution. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear you have come. Therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk disorderly, keeping the law. And so they're telling him, Paul, go with these men who have taken a vow. Go through the ritual purifications through the ceremony that is required so that we can put this garbage to rest Because you are not against Torah. You are not fighting against Torah. And we go to verse 25. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat, sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Now, I have to stop. He's reiterating, he's simply going back to what was determined in Acts 15 at the council that day. The question was, Is what do we do with these Gentiles coming in? We have the debate of, do they have to be circumcised to be saved, or don't they? And then out of Acts 15, out of this council, came this legislation. This is what we will impose upon the Gentiles. These specific things. And obviously it wouldn't be only these things, but first and foremost, these are the things that the Gentiles had to adhere if they were going to be mingling with the Jewish people. And then we go to verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification, until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Each one of them performed the sacrifice. Now, most likely, everyone is pretty much in agreement across the board. What type of vow did they take? It appears that they took a Nazarite vow. Talks about shaving their heads. And we know at the expiration of a Nazarite that you, you you offered an offering. This is, this is a Nazarite vow. And this is what happened. So look at look at what's happening here. We see temple services and sacrifices were still being practiced in Paul's day. Keep in mind Yeshua had come and gone. This was after, this is post-Yeshua's death and resurrection. Sacrifices are still continuing. So the argument that is presented is that even after the resurrection of the Lord, we find the sacrifice is continued. Clearly, it is business as usual and Acts 21 is proof of this. It's proof that when the temple is rebuilt again, things will go back to the way they were in Paul's day. And we will do what Paul did, which includes making offerings for sin. Sacrificing for sin. And they will Proceed. I've even had a gentleman proceed to tell me that failure to do so will result in the punishment of God. And where did he get that from? Well, in our next passage. Let me go to the next passage that is offered as proof. Zechariah fourteen sixteen. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, on them there will be no rain. Continuing on in verse eighteen, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes, um, uh, with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So you get the premise of what's happening here. In verse 20, we continue. And that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bulls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices... Did you get that? Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. That word for sacrifice, you know it. Zavach. You know the word. You know the word. So here we see, and this is a prophecy of the age to come, right? This is on the other side. This is on the other side of the age. And here we see there's going to be sacrifices. So you look in Acts 21, you see sacrificing. Post-Yeshua, death, resurrection. You look at Zechariah 14 and the age to come, sacrifices are taking place. Can you see why someone might come into this conclusion, if you will, that upon the return of the temple, we will the temple sacrifices will be reinstated? Do you see how this might be? All of this can be very compelling. My question is is it the truth? In other words, are we interpreting these events correctly as, as a whole? I mean, is this, can this be supported through Scripture as a whole? Or are we creating doctrines out of particular passages that do not line up with others? See, because true interpretation, right? True interpretation, if you want to receive a true understanding of the word, understand it is not going to contradict itself in any way. Everything has to harmoniously line up, right? Well, I can tell you without reservation, there is a lot missing from what I just presented to you. These things that I just presented to you have been presented to me over and over again in regard to this issue. Now, let me begin by saying, I want to be clear, I do not dispute the legitimacy of what we read in Acts 21. Not for a moment. I am absolutely in 100% agreement with what we just read in Zechariah 14. Yes, I do believe we are going to sacrifice in the age to come. But does that mean that we will be offering sin sacrifices? Chathats. Are we going to be offering an asham? A para adama? Are these things going to take place in the future? I can tell you with no reservation, they are not. They have ceased. And when you step back and you put all of this into context and you look at Scripture as a whole, we find a different picture begins to develop. Because Scripture is clear on the fact that some of the sacrifices will continue while others will cease. And when I get done showing you the scriptural evidence for this, everything that I'm telling you here is going to make perfect sense now let me begin to present the full picture by taking you to the book of hebrews and there we're going to be given some of the best commentary you're going to find anywhere in scripture regarding this topic one of the main focuses of this book is addressing the sacrificial system as observed in the torah and the writer carefully methodically reveals changes that were to occur And he substantiates these changes with scripture from the Tanakh. He doesn't create them. He doesn't create fiction out of his own mind. He pulls legitimate scripture to testify of the things that he is proclaiming. I want to take a look at this. Because we're going to see he makes it very clear that these types of offerings will never be seen again. In Hebrews 8 Verse 6, we read, but now He has obtained a more excellent ministry. Speaking of Yeshua, He has obtained a more excellent ministry and as much as He is also a mediator of a better covenant. Now one of the... Oh, man. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder about the things that come back to you. Not that long ago I had a gentleman uh, attempting to tell me the new covenant is, doesn't exist right now. The new covenant is not going to exist until the age to come. Well, I keep that in mind as we're reading through here. I took him to this passage and he, he was scratching his head for the longest time. But we read, he is the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. First thing I want to note here about this passage. There is an old covenant and there is a new covenant. Okay? And this is identified, you don't got to go to the New Testament for this. You can go to the Tanakh. You can go to the prophet Yirmiyahu, to Jeremiah. And the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and prophesies, Behold, I'm coming, I'm making a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, And there's something about this new covenant, something which the writer of Hebrews understood perfectly, that this covenant, the new covenant, would be superior to that of the old. They they had an old system. There was a better system that Yahweh was going to put in place. A much better system. And as we continue, we'll begin to see this. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. He makes an interesting observation. He's just going on giving more evidence. If the first covenant was the finality, if what God has instituted, what we see in Torah, with the animal sacrifices, with the blood atonement of animals, if that was the grand finale, why another covenant? What's the point, right? He found fault. And again, if you go back to the New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31, you read, because finding fault with them, I mean, it was because of us. We needed something better. And the Lord knew that. That was the whole plan. Now, jumping down to verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I'm going to read this again. What is becoming obsolete? What is becoming? You got that? Not what was obsolete. Not It has been obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's ready to vanish. What is the writer of Hebrews telling us here? What was he telling those Hebrews who were alive with him in the first century? He was telling them that, hey, listen, the system that we've been under for roughly 1,500 years, guess what? It's beginning to wear out. It is ready to vanish away. The writer of Hebrews understood what was happening. Things were about to change and never be the same again. Think of it this way. The glory of it was fading away. In other words, we find that when Yeshua rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, a light switch doesn't just get flicked off. And immediately the blood sacrifices, the sacrifices for sin all of a sudden just immediately stopped. They closed the doors of the temple. They locked up the altar. The writer states that this was something that was slowly fading away. In other words, think of it this way. It is a period of transition. That's what this is. This is a period of transition. And to help uh, you further, help you put this into perspective, I want to give you another biblical example. Because in this example, we actually have a parallel to that of the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. A parallel of the transition period that would happen. And that it would be seamless. Look at this. In John chapter 3, we read the following. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You see what happens? One of his disciples, John's disciples, comes to him and he's confused because he knew what John's ministry was. John's ministry was that of baptism. Yochanan the Immerser, his ministry was calling people to repentance. And this was experienced through the mikvah, through baptism. Now all of a sudden, Yeshua comes on the scene. He's over yonder. He's doing the same thing. And John's describing, he's confused. He goes, why are people starting to go to him? Look at what happens. Look at what we read in verse 27. Yochanan answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him. From heaven, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Mashiach, but I have been sent before him. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Listen. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but John was decreasing this is an amazing example a snapshot if you will of exactly what would happen regarding the moving from the old covenant to the new covenant when yeshua started his ministry did john just immediately cease from what he was doing i mean did he hang up his cloak and walk away no we're actually there's a scriptural evidence in the new Testament. he was still baptizing people even after yeshua started his ministry and was doing the same, which we know was superior, right? And yet John was still doing it, but he brings insight into the matter and says, well, he must increase and I must decrease. This is, this is a transition period. This is exactly what happened when we moved from the old covenant system to the new covenant. There's a transition. And you think about, let me bring this into modern day terms. When corporations buy out other companies, they go in, and what is there? There's a transition period. Well, interestingly enough, what do they do? They keep on the main people. They don't get rid of them, they don't fire them, they keep them on because they know what's going on. They do all these things, they keep them on until D Day, and then eventually they are totally let go, and it's over. But what's awesome about that is, is when you look at what a transition period is, it's something without seams. There's no seams in it. It's perfectly smooth. When you look at John's ministry to Yeshua's, there was a transition. It was perfectly smooth. No seams. Same thing. You go to the Old Covenant, to the New Covenant, it is without seams. The New Covenant increased and the Old Covenant Decrease. Let me further provide some insight on this by going to Paul, uh, his second epistle to the Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 7. But if the, ministry, uh, if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. The first thing that you, you need to be careful about, that system that we read about in Torah, there is no question. That system is glorious. It was ordained by God. When they showed up at the mountain to enter into covenant with Yahweh, Yahweh is the one who created it. Yahweh is the one who told them, this is how it's going to be. Of course it's glorious. So Paul mentions, it was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance. Which glory was passing away? He doesn't say it evaporates into thin air in a millisecond, and a nanosecond it's all gone. Which glory was passing away? How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? And we continue on in verse 9. For the ministry of condemnation had glory. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. In other words, that's increasing. For if what is passing away... Same context, same terminology that the writer of Hebrews uses, Paul uses, in regard to the Old Covenant system, this sacrificial system. He says, for what is passing away? Now he doesn't say it was gone. What is passing away was glorious. What remains is much more glorious. The Apostle Paul saw the transition period. He understood it perfectly. He knew this system was passing away. And let me tell you something. It wasn't just the Apostle Paul who noticed a change with the coming of Yeshua's ministry. It was also Paul's Jewish counterparts. They picked up on the fact that something was happening, unheard of. Proof of this is found in the Talmud, which ironically enough pertains to the miracles. This passage I'm about to show you, it pertains to the miracles that happen on this day, on Yom Kippur. Listen to this uh, Talmudic discussion our rabbis taught during the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple the lot for the lord did not come up in the right hand now understand something in the ceremony on yom kippur the Kohen gadol one of the things that he would do he would have a goat sitting on this side and a goat sitting on this side he would go up to the lottery box that had two lots in it that he did not see he would reach his hands into the lottery box. He would pull a lot into each hand, and he would pull those out at the same time. And what was one of the miracles on Yom Kippur, every Yom Kippur, every year that would happen is the priest, the Kohen, would pull up the lot for the Lord in the right hand. La Adonai. The, the, the lot would say La Adonai, and the one on the left would say La Azazel. Okay? And the, the La Adonai would be the one that would be slain. But this is one of the miracles of the temple. And here, the Talmudic discussion is saying 40 years before the destruction of the temple, this miracle did not happen. Every year it happens, but the last 40 years it didn't happen. Well, isn't that interesting? Not just that, it goes on to say, nor did the crimson colored strap become white. What else happened? Well, when the priest pulled up the one for La'azazel, that one was called the scapegoat. And that goat, there would be tied a scarlet thread. And what would happen is the guy would lead this scapegoat out to the wilderness, never to return. They would never see this goat again. As they're leading this goat out, a miracle happened, Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. What was that miracle? That scarlet thread turned white. This was a miracle of Yom Kippur. And the rabbis are making note, but the last 40 years, of the, destruction, the last 40 years before the destruction of the temple, the scarlet thread doesn't turn white. It's crazy. And then they go on um, to say, nor did the westernmost light shine. Something that had never happened before. It was going out. They couldn't make any sense of it. And the doors of the temple, or the heckle, would open by themselves. During the last 40 years, these miracles that happened on Yom Kippur, the Jewish people had become accustomed to, they stopped happening. And the rabbi saw something. They saw something was taking place. They saw something had changed. Though they didn't understand it. Something was fading away. Right? And isn't this just interesting? Because when the temple was destroyed, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Go back 40 years before the destruction of the temple and you are brought to 30 common era, the very time of Yeshua. The very time of Yeshua's death and resurrection. 30 AD. And then for the last 40 years, these things did not happen. I'm telling you, the glory was passing away. Let me take you back to the book of Hebrews, continue to give you some further insight into this awesome, this marvelous sacrifice that our Lord Yeshua did. Hebrews 9.11, but Mashiach came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You're going to see this terminology. The writer of Hebrews uses it constantly. Once and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. We continue on in verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer, well, we know that's the paradama, right? What are we talking about? The bulls of bloods and goats? This is it happened on Yom Kippur. The sacrificing bulls and goats on Yom Kippur. The bulls was for the Kohen Gadol himself, and the goats were for the people. We're talking about the sacrifices for sin. You understand? Put this in context. And the sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Mashiach who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And we continue in verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. It doesn't say he will be the mediator of the new covenant. He is the mediator of the new covenant because the new covenant has been instituted. It has been activated, right? How? He tells us. By means of death. It's the next thing he says. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. That those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Verse 23. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. Did you get that? It was necessary. He's telling us about the Torah, about the things that it proclaims, that it required of Israel. He's telling us these things were necessary. They were copies of the heavens. But then he goes on, um, that therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so, in other words, the writer he was just told us that all these things that we read about, as you get into Exodus and Leviticus, and you get in the construction of the tabernacle and what was ordained as far as the services, the sacrificial services, these were copies; these were shadows of something that was to come. We go to verse 25. Not that Yeshua should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. What did the high priest do once a year, every year, like Cockwork, never missed it? Yom Kippur. He made that sacrifice. Now he goes on to verse 26. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of... Of the ages. He has appeared to put away sin. You get that? Put away sin. He put it away by the sacrifice of himself. Going to verse 1. Going to the next verse. For the law, the Torah having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur. Reminder, 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 reminder of what? Sin. Keep that in your mind, because we're going to need this. Year after year, there was a reminder of sins. And we go on to verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The writer of Hebrews cuts to the chase. Again, going to the fact that what we have outlined under this old sacrificial system, this was not God's end time plan. This was not the final product. There was something else. Because it wasn't possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world... Now look at what the writer of Hebrews does. He goes to Tanakh. He starts quoting scripture. He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. This is Psalm 40 but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Sacrifices for sin, he had no pleasure. Verse 7. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which which are offered according to the law. They were offered according to the law. We get this. There's no confusion. Go to 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And what he's saying in this Psalm 40, this is a testament to this change, to what was happening. And what does he say? He takes away the first that he might establish the second. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. There is a new covenant, Right? And then he goes on, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua. Here's that term again, once for all. Once for all. Verse 11, And every cohen stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till His enemies are made His footstool. Verse 14, For by one offering, this again, terminology over and over again, by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after He had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. This is Jeremiah 31. It says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Now listen to this. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Read it again. Where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The very height of the writer of Hebrews' discourse is right here. Everything that the writer was working towards, that he was mentioning, was all building up to this point. There is no longer a sacrifice for sins. In other words, there will never ever again, just in case you're unclear, there will never ever be a sin offering. It's been dealt with. Now you might be thinking, well, wait a second, Daniel. What about what Zechariah prophesied of? Didn't he say that there would be sacrifices in the age to come? Yes, he does. But please notice, nowhere will you find anywhere in the passage that explicitly tells us about sin, offering sin sacrifices. A chatat, an asham, a paradama. Read it in the English, read it in the Hebrew. It's not there. I have studied the passage. Remember, there are offerings besides sin offerings. Offerings like that of the mincha, the grain offering, where we bring the first of our increase to the Lord. There are sacrifices that don't pertain to sin. This is exactly what Zechariah is talking about. And if you think I'm really going out on a limb here, let me further support this. Even Jewish tradition makes the same assessment, the writer of, as the writer of Hebrews does here. And I want to share this with you, this commentary. The following commentary is written by a Dr. Richard Schwartz, and he wrote it for the Jewish Virtual Library. And it's regarding sacrifices and the Messianic era, and the age to come, what the context of Zechariah 14 would be. Listen to what he says. This is absolutely amazing. Many Jewish scholars, such as Rabbi uh, Avraham Yitzhak Kuk, how would you like to have a last name like that? A very famous rabbi, very profound, very respected. This rabbi believed that animal sacrifices will not be reinstated in Messianic times, even with the reestablishment of the temple. They believed that at the time... Human conduct will advance to such high standards that there will no longer be need for animal sacrifices to atone for sins. Well, isn't that interesting? Human conduct will have reached such high standards. That parallels exactly what happens in the New Testament. What happens? Paul tells us, a Jewish boy tells us, that our corruption is going to put on incorruption. We are going to reach higher standards. Our mortality is going to put on immortality. Exact same thing that is being said here. And then he goes on and says, only non-animal sacrifices, grains, for example, speaking of the Mincha, to express gratitude to God would remain. There is a Midrash that states, in the Messianic era, all offerings will cease except the Thanksgiving offering, which will continue forever. It's the very offering we're reading about, the sacrifice that we're reading about in Zechariah 14. And then he says, this seems to be consistent with the belief of rabbi cook and others based on the prophecy of isaiah 11:6 through 9 that people and animals will be vegetarian in that time and none shall hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain even traditional judaism recognizes that things are going to be different the sacrificial system isn't going to continue to operate the way it always has right Yeshua's sacrifice, it was the grand finale. It was the grand finale. He put away our sins once and for all. It cannot be outdone. There's another component that I would like to mention here that that's, um, I want you to think about. And that is the fact that in the age to come, what happens? We're told scripturally something monumental takes place as we move from this age to the next. It's huge. It's a huge component of understanding whether we're going to be offering sin sacrifices in the future. Huge. Look at what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now that may not make a whole lot of sense to you, but let me elaborate. Death is going to be destroyed. What is the wages of sin? Death. So, in other words, death is proof of What? Sin, right? Death is the evidence of sin. Make no mistake. In the age to come, there will be no sign of death. There will be no evidence whatsoever of sin. There will be no evidence of it. The memory of it's going to be completely wiped out. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah sixty-five seventeen: For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. That's it. It is not going to come to mind. If you are offering a chatat, an asham, a paradumah, a if we have to do the sin sacrifices on Yom Kippur, what did the writer of Hebrews says? Let's go back. But no sacrifices. They're a reminder of sins every year. There is not going to be a reminder of sins. Make no mistake, that is being put away. Death is going to be thrown, according to Revelation 20, death in and, and Hades is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. It's gone. You better believe the sin sacrifices are not coming back. With the sacrifice of Yeshua, our sins have been blotted out for all eternity. They've been cast from us. As, what does the scripture say? As far as the east is from the west, right, in Psalms. This is the mercy of God. This is the grace of our Lord Yeshua. Yeshua's blood accomplished the impossible. And through Him and His one sacrifice for all, we are made clean. Amen.